Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Hey, everybody. I hope you're having a great week. This podcasting thing has turned out to be a lot of fun. I'm traveling a lot right now recording internal exclusive podcasts for other companies. And so this week I'm re-releasing my episode from a few months ago with Kat Gordon. One thing I've noticed, it is uncommon for someone to open up about adversity, changes, pivots, etc. while they're actually happening. If someone does this normally, it's after the fact. Kat has a lot of courage, confidence, and honesty, and it stuck out to me, and so I'm re-releasing this episode this week. It's been a lot of fun reading and hearing about her success after this conversation took place. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you have a great rest of the week and a great weekend. Life's hard, but when you find your path in life, you'll find fulfillment. I'm Sam Coates, and welcome to the Driven By Podcast. On this show, I talk to people with purpose. and hearing these stories and conversations, my hope is that you'll see your path, which will bring out the best in you. Follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram, at Sam P. Coates, and learn more about my guests and subscribe to the show at drivenbypodcast.com. My guest this week is Kat Gordon. In her mid-20s, Kat opened Muddy's Bake Shop thinking it likely wouldn't make it. 13 years later, Muddy's is one of the top bakeries in the United States. This pandemic has been a massive issue for businesses across the country, and Muddy's is no different. Muddy's completely shut its doors for several weeks and has opened one of its locations back. This episode takes a different turn than you may expect. During this episode, you'll hear more about taking advantage of a do-over. What's something I care so much about that I'm willing to be bad in order to be good at it? Feeling alive again, how the pandemic can jumpstart change, and more. Had a great time recording this episode with Kat. Happy New Year to you and yours. And if you want to learn more about Muddy's, go to muddysbakeshop.com. So I know you started Muddy's in 2008 and here we're in 2020. We haven't even talked about the pandemic yet, (laughs) but at the time of the pandemic or prior to the pandemic with three locations. So you started this bakery, you know, talked about, you've recognized all over the country Muddy's is for your work. So you you started in your mid twenties, you go for it, you don't hold anything back. And, you know, fast forward 12 years later, you know, three locations. Which is crazy. Like, I'm just going to interject here. Like, I want to go back and play this tape. Actually, I don't. Like, 2008 Cat would have totally chickened out if she knew that, like, 12 or 13 later, years later, 
this would be a real thing. <laughs> because like, actually, I, I started the business, not just like with the understanding this could fail. Like, I actually thought that it would fail. Just because you doubted yourself that much? Yeah. Well, and I was like, and why would it succeed? I never even worked in a bakery. I didn't have a KitchenAid mixer. Like I'd never operated a stand mixer until after I signed the damn lease. Like (laughs) it was like, that is stupid. Like anybody who cared about me was like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, and for really good reasons. It's not like this was like, oh, don't let the man get you down. Like, no, these were all people who like were 100% accurate I was going on some sort of weird spiritual suicide mission to prove that to myself that like I could cope with failure and still commit to something. (laughs) So the fact that it is still in existence period is like proof that God has a hilarious (laughs) sense of humor. (laughs) So yes, continue. But like, that is the thing that it's like, I really want folks to understand like, that's how funny this is. (laughs) As much as you had already told yourself you're going to fail and actually thought you were going to fail. Yeah. Like that was the mission. (laughs) Most people go do stuff like that for a weekend. They don't really commit like a, a, you know, an unknown disclosed of time and in that many hours for an experiment to fail. (laughs) What about prior to the pandemic? How are you thinking about money how are you thinking about locations? How are you thinking about your strategy? What did that look like? Fast forward, you know, 11, 12 years, given your personality and what you've already talked about. What was that like prior to the pandemic? I love this question because it is such, this is such a bigger question than I think most people have realized. So I started this business, you know, with the intent to fail. And again, that also isn't really fair too, because it's not like I intend, I didn't try to like sabotage it. I just felt sure that obviously it would, but you know, in my like hope of hopes, the like, well, what if it didn't, then what I needed to accomplish was for want of better words, what I felt called to do was in many ways, I felt called to at least attempt to build a church <laughs> that wasn't called a church and wasn't like a fish, like with none of the trappings, but like sort of at the soul level was something that would offer something to my community. You know, like we talked about earlier, everybody wants to feel like there's something that they can contribute and make other people's lives better in some way. So that has really been the thread all the way through. That's what you felt then. That is what I felt then. It is what I still feel now. That is what Muddy's is all about. Whether we make, you know, the baked goods really are because like, that's also a thing that I like and I know how to make it. But fun, fun, weird little thing. Um, Muddy's has been, Muddy's are two, the very first two times that we were, our name was printed in the newspaper was, you know, you get a business license and it's printed in like all those places. It was first misprinted as Muddy's Bait Shop, (laughs) B-A-I-T, which is like, yeah, I mean, this is, I'm familiar with bait shops, but like really one in Sanderlin Center in East Memphis. Yep. That's what folks need. And then I can't remember if it was the like correction reprint of that or if it was something else entirely, but then it was next printed as Muddy's Bike Shop. 
<laughs> which as we've established is ironic for lots of reasons. Right. <laughs> so, you know, those were the first two, but like, I would say if I was selling crickets and worms or selling bikes, I mean, like that would still be the same purpose. I would still want to create a hospitable space. I would still want people to walk out a little bit different than they walked in and feel in some small, tiny little way, a little more equipped for their day and like whatever was ahead for them. So that, you know, that's the thing that like gets me up in the morning. That's the thing that drives me. That's the thing that, you know, running a small business is hard. It is not for weenies. (laughs) You have to make really hard decisions. You have to be willing to mess it up over and over again. The list of former coworkers, customers, neighbors that like probably deserve a written apology from me for something is at least as long as my arm. So like that's sort of the overlying thing. And so your question about pre-pandemic, where was I and what was I thinking about is a big one because I think where I was for the two years prior to the pandemic was in a state very similar to the year before I started Muddy's. Only this time, I mean, this time I knew more and I knew my vocation. I knew my thing I'm supposed to be doing and in many measurable ways, seeming to accomplish it, but in a way that was leaving me increasingly dry. Um, So it was like, you know, I, I love this image of a water wheel. You know, a water wheel is such a useful, utilitarian, practical workhorse of a tool But if there's not water flowing in, there's also not water flowing out. You know, if the creek starts to run dry, like, and the water wheel itself will start to break down. And that's kind of where I was because I think I mentioned that I tend to take on a lot more responsibility and like assume that I personally have like an outsized impact on other people. So, you know, I think in trying to be more what people want and in trying to say yes more and create more opportunities for staff and, you know, say yes to more customer desires and all these things that are in themselves good things. I was spreading myself so incredibly thin that I I was really having trouble seeing a way forward and knew that like, I can't, this is going to run out. I don't have enough juice in the tank to keep this up for a whole lot longer at this pace and at this level, there was a podcast episode that I listened to two and a half years ago now, maybe. And it was Ashton Gustafson, who I don't know if you're familiar with, but like, I think you would love him, but he was interviewing my now friend, Sean Askinosi. Oh yeah. And this was, I mean, there are sometimes a few things that you can pinpoint like, Oh, here's the thing that like cracked open. This was a fork in the road. And they were talking and Sean was talking about his concept of reverse scale, which I just think is so interesting. But then Ashton repeated back to him and he was like, what I am hearing you saying is that if you're not careful when scaling your business, you can end up delegating your vocation. And Sam, the water, I mean, I am not a big crier. (laughs) And I remember sitting in my car. Cause like, I just, I was listening to Sean and I just kept, I was like, I had arrived at work, but it was like, I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep listening to this. And so I just sat in my car and like 
that broke me because that's exactly where I was. When was that? That was probably, that was probably two and a half or two years ago. So this has been going on. This has been going on because when you're 25 and having a crisis, your actions don't impact, like deciding to open a business to like maybe fail and find your vocation and all these things at the end of the day, doesn't have that many consequences for other people. It's potentially really embarrassing to you if it doesn't work out, but there aren't that many people that are impacted, but you can't walk into your like three locations one day and you're 35 to 45 staff and your thousands of customers and be like, Hey guys, I'm tired and I'm not getting to do much of the stuff that like really feeds my soul so that I can keep doing the most important part of this work to me. This may be too blunt of a question. Did you think about selling the bakery? Of course. Any business owner that tells you, I mean, you know this, like, yeah. If you ask someone, have you ever thought of selling your business or have you ever thought of quitting? If that person says no, it means they either just started yesterday (laughs) or they're a liar. (laughs) Uh, I love my business so much. I love my business potentially an inappropriate amount. I am always probably flirting with that line of like, I'd say 95% of the time my business is this wonderful relationship that like is this thing I can contribute and my vocation and brings me closer to God. But there is, if I'm honest with you, there is at least 5% of the time that that business crosses over into idle territory. And I probably have it like a little bit higher up on my priority list than I should. That's it. Only 5%. Probably five, you know, probably earlier on it was more volatile. I do think like gaining a little like time and maturity has, I've been able to develop some skills to keep it there, but Of course I thought about selling the business because I also really had to think about like, okay, if this is some sort of midlife crisis, is it fair to like, I mean, what am I, A, what am I going to do? What am I even proposing? Like, what do I think is the action that I'm going to take that's going to like change course here? How many people are affected? And then is that even appropriate? Like, is the appropriate thing to say, wow, the business is on this trajectory and I can't keep doing that. So like, is it that I need to go over here and allow the business to like move on without me? You know, that's a legitimate question. I really wrestled with it. Had you reached a conclusion prior to COVID? Yes. Thank God, right? Can you share that? Yeah, I recommitted. Really? To the same trajectory, everything? Well, with conditions. I think I just, I really thought about like, here's what needs to happen. But what is interesting, and this is something, you know, I'm just trying to think about like, this is my problem. I get, I get lost in a conversation and think like, oh, it's just you and me talking. And I kind of re- like have to remember, oh yeah, there's somebody listening to this that is hoping to get something out of this. I do say one of the things that was really helpful in this process for me is for about a decade now, I've been learning, practicing, and teaching around a tool called visioning that has been really helpful. And as an English major and like a person who likes literature, I think this is also a tool that is helpful because you're basically writing a story. So it's like, okay, well, can you tell a story about the future 
that is set in the future. So like it also helps me get out of my like to-do list self because it's like, well, this is a story set in the future. So whatever has happened has happened. And you can kind of write from there. I do a thing with visioning that is like not what the people who taught me how to do it taught, but it works for me. Um, Sam, do you remember those books when we were kids that were the like, choose your own adventure books? No, I'm not the best person to ask. I only read like Matt Christopher sports books. So bad person to ask, but I'm with you. Whoever invented these books, it was fantastic. Cause it's like, of course, like also all kids want agency and to be able to make choices. So like whoever came up with that genius, but so for visioning, using it as a decision-making tool, I have really like, it resonates a lot with me to create alternate reality, like alternate endings to a story. So I made myself write a vision because this is the other thing I do with myself. I try to also manage my, it's like, okay, well, what would be the advice I would give to someone who's asking me about this? Because we all have great advice. We just don't all take our own advice. So like, I'll have a meeting with myself and be like, okay, here's the issue that this other person is having. What would you advise them to do? And okay, cat, do it. Like do that thing. So I made myself write a vision for selling the business. I wrote a vision for staying in the business on its current trajectory and like dealing with it. I wrote a vision for, this one was sort of an interesting one to play with. I wrote a vision for drastically growing the business, you know, which is something I think we got our first franchise offer like in year two. So, I mean, I'm constantly getting these like, oh, do you want to, do you want capital? Do you want to franchise? So I made myself, it's never resonated with me, but I was like, okay, well, what if like, okay, what if you really grew a lot? And you did take this on and like, there's a team of people who can do some of this stuff. And like, you're actually kind of back in this role of like more hands-on creative director. So like that one was actually kind of fun to write. I didn't ever want to go back and reread it. Like I never was tempted to visit that reality again, but it was helpful to write it. Yeah. So that was just, I'd say for anybody listening, that's such a low stakes way to play with the future of like, well, can I even describe what I think this might be like? And do I want to read it again and go visit there again? Or is it like, well, I learned a lot by writing it, but eh, you know, I don't really want to go to there. And then I also wrote a vision. It was actually the first vision that I wrote of that series was a vision about what would it be like to have a do-over with everything that, you know, I get to keep everything I've learned, but like, you magically have like a pile of money and can do a do-over of like, if you had to rebuild or whatever, that was the one that I kept like, Oh, I just, I wanted to read it again and again. And it was really clear to me that selling the business was certainly an option. And in many ways, probably the more responsible option. Like if I wanted to have the security, (laughs) Um, I could probably get a decent price for it. And, and, you know, because like this is Memphis, like I could probably also find somebody who like didn't want to kill it, but liked it for what it was, you know, but 
it was pretty clear to me that this is my thing and I'm not done with it and it's not done with me. When you say it was pretty clear to me that this was my thing, how did you discover that or how did you see that or feel that? I think again, I mean, the visions really helped with that. Like, you know, having the discipline, I'm really proud of myself that I did buck up and write an actual future where I had sold this thing that I have, I mean, poured everything into that really, I'm very proud of myself because I didn't want to, like I, I resisted even writing that. Like I just didn't want to, but it was really helpful. I think what was, what I learned from that was that A, it was possible. Like once I started writing, it's like, oh, you know, you're not buddies and buddies isn't, you, you know, this isn't like you're gonna, you know, <laughs> this like death is always the, the outcome. Like, you know, you're not gonna die if the business does. Or if it goes to, you know, and so that right there was just, I think, comforting. You know, that's one of the challenges of small business owners. It's so hard for us to sometimes to imagine ourselves doing anything different. And like my nightmare is always that like, I just feel like I'm completely unemployable. Yeah, It's like, I don't have a college degree. I I don't actually know that I would be a good employee. (laughs) I would probably be a terrible employee. And then I think like, oh my gosh, and then who would want to, who would want to hire me? Like what skills do I even have that translate to something else? You know, that's, I think all of us who've had a small business that, that goes somewhere. We're like, Oh my God. Right. (laughs) So yeah, it was just like, it was probably really helpful to see that that was a possibility, but it was also really impactful to have that reality written. And obviously, I mean, part of visioning is that you don't write the worst possible outcome. You actually write assuming that all is well, So it was reassuring for me to feel like, okay, this is a very real and viable option and it won't kill me. And I can obviously have, I'm sure, a fulfilling life without it. But the fact that I never really wanted to pick that vision up again, I wasn't that curious about it. I didn't want to explore it further. It just kind of sat in a drawer in a notebook, I think just tells me that it was a really good use of time. How long did that take to write these four visions? That, that probably happened over the course of about six months. So this whole seeking period. Oh, there was like a year to a year and a half discernment period. And when did you come to that decision? I feel like January 2018 is when I really recognized that something was wrong, like really wrong. And that it wasn't just a blip, you know, cause we all hit burnout. You know, we've all been burnout. We go through there's ups and downs and you know, that's just normal. But yeah, I think that was probably around January and it was probably a year to a year and a half later that I really like I had made myself cause you know, I was also like running a business and not just going on like a, a soul walkabout sabbatical with no emails and, you know, in your cabin in New Hampshire. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, So, you know, this was like a lot of self-discovery work and discernment work, you know, sort of just shoehorned in between like actually doing, doing the work. (laughs) Did you work with somebody like a counselor or a coach? Should have. It might have gone a lot faster. (laughs) So you did all this yourself. Like, where did you get the visioning idea? I have been a part of a small business roundtable for maybe eight years, which has been 
life-changing in the way that honestly, like AA is life-changing. What's it called? For so many people. Zing Train Roundtable. There are a lot of like kind of roundtable groups around. This is like my friend and mentor, Maggie, owns Zing Train, a business training company in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, They teach visioning. So like that's where I took the class. And about a decade ago, she she started a little side project roundtable. And I think two years after they started, I was invited to join. So like, it's just, it's like a one-off. But either way, I mean, I think for other people, I mean, it's like, whether that's a formal roundtable group or just, you know, your fellow small business friends, your people who are traveling that path and know what it's like, but I think also importantly, knowing what your ideals are and the values. So some people, it's just helpful, you know, when you own your own business also, you can't even like, so Muddy's, Muddy's has a fantastic feedback culture. We worked really hard to build it too. We haven't always had that, but to a certain extent, even if we get an A plus on like openness of feedback between colleagues and whatever, at the end of the day, it still is unfair for me as the boss to expect that my employee is just going to like hold me accountable. So for business owners, I think it's really important to have, you know, a round table or a business friend or somebody who's going to be available to both have a frank conversation with to like work through some stuff, but also to kind of tell you like, Hey, I think you're in a real funk or, Hey, I think you're missing this key thing here or like, Hey, you're being an ass. So that group was really helpful. So I don't want it to sound like, Oh, I just was sort of walking through the desert by myself. You know, I told them what was going on and there was a lot of, you know, support and assistance. And it was helpful too, because like I had, I basically gave myself a series of homework assignments throughout the course of a year and a half to complete. And it was nice to have people to share my homework with. So like, you know, whether they read it or not to just be like, okay, here's this thought exercise I did, or here's this thought exercise I'm going to do. And I will post my homework in two weeks on our group site that has value. So you chose one of those four options, which was, what would I do if I did it over again? Is that correct? Yeah. And I figured it would probably take about, like, I figured that would be a process that took about five years to get to because like I'm not gonna walk in one day and be like, sorry guys, burn out. No. But then a pandemic happened. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like some of it it sped up some pieces of of that. And then it like also completely pulled the rug out from under other stuff. I think the benefit though, maybe the advantage that I had was that I had had at that point two years of having to really carefully examine every aspect of my business and ask myself, what was important to me? What was important to my customers? If you were starting over again, what are the things you would prioritize? Looking back, what are the things that, you know, made it magic for you or for other people that you wish you'd fought harder to protect? Like, because I had done all of that work, it's actually irrelevant what my five-year plan was going to be the relevant part is that like I had asked those questions and done that work. So when the entire world suddenly shifted, I wasn't having to think about some of that stuff for the first time. 
it was just like, oh, okay, well, here's how we prioritize this. What were some of the high points on the do-over that you wanted to change or you wanted to transform into? Yeah, I think one of the big ones was remarrying production with service. So when I first opened Muddy's, you know, I'm a really visual person. So I have all these sketches that I had done about kind of what I had in mind for the bakery. And then also like some Microsoft paint outlines. Yeah. And in every version of this, like it was a really big deal to me from early on that I wanted it to feel like people were coming to my house, you know, that they weren't coming to something that was too slick or, you know, too professional. I wanted it to have that same feeling. Like when you go to a friend's house and like there's stuff going on in the kitchen and there's stuff going on in the living room and you can kind of like be a part of it all. Yeah. So, you know, here when we first opened in the St. Erland shopping center, it's like everything we made was made right here. You know, you could see it. You might get splattered with a little cake batter, which, you know, was not the plan and not ideal, obviously. But I really, as we grew, that was probably the thing that broke my heart the most to change because we could not keep up with the demand without having to have more kitchen space somewhere and we're in a shopping center. So like it wasn't an option to get bigger. So we had to move the majority of the baking off site in order to grow and keep saying yes to people. But that always really made me sad. So a big piece of it was like, okay, you got to figure out how to bring that back. Cause it's important that people understand that real people are making their food but it's also really important for the people making that food to understand that real people are eating it. You know, this isn't just a cupcake. This is somebody's birthday. This isn't just a pie. This is somebody's Thanksgiving table and they're entrusting us with a family tradition. Cause like grandma always used to make the pie and now they're letting us make it. And that's a really big deal. So yeah, I think that was probably the, the number one change that like, okay, we've got to get that back. So were you going to close down? Well, I know you already closed Midtown. Yeah. Were you going to run everything out abroad? Was that your plan? It was definitely an idea. And honestly, to a certain extent, the broad location (laughs) was always intended to be more public than it was. So this is, I mean, again, like I feel like pandemic world this is, I don't want to like minimize how challenging this has been. But at the same time, I feel like I'm the recipient of so much sheer dumb luck where, you know, our broad kitchen, we moved into it about this time, eight years ago, uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, which is a terrible time for a bakery to be moving. That was not planned, but you know, you know how this stuff goes, like stuff isn't just doesn't always go to plan. But yeah, when we, that building before us, I mean, it had to be completely gutted and done and it was much too big for us for what we needed at the time. But we always sort of intended, like the idea was like, maybe we'll do baking classes out of here, or maybe there'll be a little shop up front eventually. Cause you know, it preceded the Midtown store by several years. So yeah, we always sort of meant for that to be more customer facing 
And it's just like the way that the timeline sort of worked out, it, it just never was. But that means luckily, man, it's like, it's like it was just ready for us. You know, we needed it. The pandemic hit and we needed it and it was there and it had the bones of what we needed to happen because, you know, because eight years ago we were like, well, we've got to run electrical to over here anyway. So we might as well just go ahead while the floors are all torn up. We might as well go ahead and put it in the other part of the building too. And yeah, thank God. Cause now we, it's like we just had this huge life raft ready when we needed it. Just amazing. Hey everybody, we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S., Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. When you think about kind of what you envision in the future or the narrative that you've already laid out, has some of the energy come back that you talked about for a couple years that went away where you were in these dark places trying to wrestle with the future? A, has the energy come back? And then B, where are you thinking or moving things like for the next 10 years? Just curious out of this, because what I feel like you're describing is this kind of like death and rebirth. Oh, absolutely. This is strangely hard to say because of how much so many, like so many of my compatriots are struggling so much right now. But the last, so this is December right now that we're recording this, the last five months, since, so since we reopened, we closed for three months. <laughs> April Fool's Day was our last day open. Wow. You know, and at the time we didn't know, like, is this for a month? Is this for ever? Like, who knows? But April Fool's Day, and that seemed awfully appropriate since we opened on Leap Day. <laughs> um, yeah, and then we were, we, cl- we were closed for about three months, and then we reopened right before July 4th. And... Since then, the last five months have probably been, for me, the most switched on I have been at my job in a decade, for which I'm very grateful because I cannot imagine navigating these waters as exhausted as I know some of my peers are. But I feel like the re- it was like a reset and... It has been so incredibly liberating also to be able to say, okay, the world is different. There are so many things outside of our control and so many things that honestly, it's like we have to change so much about how we work and how we do the thing that the benefit of it has been a real ability to reset. And again, I mean, I kind of mentioned earlier, I'd I'd already spent 
two years asking really big questions of myself and like getting really like both large and small, giving myself answers about priorities and what's important. So it's like I had, it's like I had this suitcase packed, but then yeah, like having to just start over again, basically was challenging, but also just so incredibly liberating to like, okay, well, guess what? Doing it the way we did it before isn't even an option on the menu, even if we wanted it. Even if we wanted it, it's like, nope, sorry. <laughs> Choose something else. Yeah. So the ability to just not take on as much has been huge. Also, I think one of the things I've struggled with the entire time that I've run this business has been, how do I pace myself appropriately? <laughs> like, okay, you can't have a sprint mentality running a small business. Like it'd be totally different when I guess it was. It's like early on, it's like, of course, everything is a sprint. And it's just like, this race is probably going to be over in a few months and I need to feel like I gave it my all. But if you maintain that pace for a year and then another year after that, and then another year after that, and it's like, almost 13 years later, you're just like, I've been running one sprint after another and not smartly. Like, um, you know, if I knew this was going to be a marathon, I would train totally differently. And then it's been really great to look at like, okay, for pandemic life, it was clear in March that like, okay, for every single business owner, any person in a leadership position, this isn't going to be a sprint you know, whatever reopening looks like for you, we knew that this pandemic was not going to be like, oh, it's going to be gone in a month. You know, we didn't know how long it was going to be, but like, it was so clear, this is not going to be something that you can just power through. So I think that also was really helpful in thinking about, you know, how to use the information that I had and how to make some decisions to say, all right, it's game over if you're a month in and burnt out and exhausted. Game over. So what do you see the future looking like? You know, I don't, I don't totally know. What's interesting to me, is I have some ideas for what the future looks like. And, you know, I won't, I won't evade that. But I think the thing that's really interesting that I've learned, um, and it kind of goes back to when you asked me if I considered selling my business, what the closure between, you know, we were closed April, May, and June. I learned a lot too there. Like, Muddy's isn't going to exist for forever. A, we all die. So like, newsflash, if this is the first time that you're hearing that, you know, like, each of us will die one day. But so do the things that we built. You know, even if Muddy's outlasts me, it's not going to outlast everyone. Like it's going to go away at some point. Everything does. And I got really more comfortable with that idea and that fact while we were closed than I ever have been. And that in itself was liberating. Like that is a big, big deal to realize like, okay, the worst case scenario is that it fails. It goes away. It doesn't exist anymore. And like, that's not going to be the end of the world. The world will keep going on and I will keep going on. So I say that to say like, what does the future look like? 
I've got some plans. I've got some ideas. I've got some hopes. And it is interestingly to me tempered with a really calm acceptance that I don't think I've ever had before that like, if not, that's okay. That really is okay. But you know, more fun. (laughs) What I do hope for So looking forward, it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe there was a five-year plan, but that's out the window now too. Like, what are we cooking with in the kitchen? Where can we go from here in a way that feels good? I think I am loving, I am loving being in one place. Mm. So that's one of the things I'm really having to wrestle with right now uh, because, you know, the Midtown location closed permanently um, and I feel very, very blessed that that is now in different hands and good hands. Like that was just a really, really excellent handoff that I could feel good about. But, you know, we haven't rushed reopening the Sanderlin store because I'm very conscious that this is a marathon and like, okay, I can only manage so much. We can only bite off so much and we got to be ready if like, you know, it was hypothetical and now it's actually happening. Like, okay, another surge happening whatever. So it's just like, I'm going to run a small tight ship for as long as I can practically. But because that has now been the reality for five months, I find myself increasingly reluctant to give it up because I love driving to work in the morning and then being there all day and then driving home. (laughs) And like, what a silly little thing to just grasp onto. But we forget that that is those little tiny details of the day-to-day. That's what make up our whole lives. It's really not the like big one-off moments. It's the itty-bitty, you know, it's like a marriage, you know. I don't want to like say like, oh, my wedding day wasn't important. But like when I look at the marriage my husband and I have, our wedding day didn't like set the tone. It's not this big thing. What makes our marriage is that like, We intentionally say thank you to each other a lot. That over the 14 or 15 years we've been together is what probably has made a huge difference for me. So similarly, it's like, it sounds dumb to be like, I hate driving around all day, but like, okay, that's kind of a big deal. If that's an hour and a half every day that drained my energy and now I'm not doing it, Instead, I'm bringing that energy to the food and my staff and our customers. I'm not arriving somewhere feeling already just like stressed out. So that's been a really big deal. And it's been really fun. You know, we're we're making the food right there. Do you ever feel pressure from a reputation standpoint, from an image standpoint, or from a financial standpoint? that you can't be okay with who you are and the way you just laid that out? Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course. I think everybody does. But I think this is also the kind of thing where it's important for me to remember that, A, somebody giving me a compliment is not the same as like them telling me how I should live my life. Like somebody saying to me, wow, you should open a Muddy's in Germantown. It's taken me this long to like hear that and hear it as, hey, I really like what you've built here instead of, 
this isn't good enough. And I need, I need you to do this thing. And my life is going to be terrible if you don't. Cause again, that's one of those things where it's like saying it out loud, you realize how ridiculous that sounds, but like, if we're honest, that's, of course, that's how we internalize some of these things. So I think for so long, I felt that cause I really, I resisted growing the business for a long time. And I think that it's because I often heard those things that were compliments it's a compliment for somebody to say, I want what you built in my neighborhood or, you know, looking at like, it's like, okay, well, we, we also don't make gluten-free stuff and it can feel like this enormous pressure. Like we're just letting all these people down. If we don't, if I don't like go and learn how to do this really specialized style of baking and carve out a special corner of my kitchen so that it's like airtight from any flour, it's like, it's easy to feel like, oh, I'm just ruining these people's lives if I don't do this thing that they're asking me to do. And I think the last few months, I've had a much easier time hearing that instead of hearing it that way, which like obviously they don't intend for it to be heard that way because they're not crazy people. But like to just hear it as, hey, I like coming here and I like this experience and like it sure would be great if my menu that I want were also part of this. It doesn't make it a personal attack or a personal obligation that like I need to be the one to create that. It's your choice. Yeah. And so I just think recognizing limits, like we all have limits and in a weird way, you know, trying to be everything to everybody because they told you that that's what they wanted is also this really toxic sort of hubris to even think that there's a compelling reason that you should attempt to do that is a really inappropriate sense of boundary (laughs) and human limitations. And that's just, I think that's something I'm going to struggle with my whole life. Like, you know, I want to take care of everybody. It matters a lot to me if I feel like I'm letting anybody down. So yeah, needing to sort of just remember like, all right, you've got this space, you've got this tiny corner of the kingdom. It's that both and, you know, do a good job with it. Like give it your all, like ride that horse with your whole ass. (laughs) But like, also you're not really capable of going beyond that. You need to fully saturate it a hundred percent. Don't be lazy here, but also don't make it bigger, grander, don't take on other horses. Yeah. What I'm sensing from how you've laid all this out very honestly is what drove you to build what you built was the feeling that you wanted to provide when somebody walked into the store, the the connection, the human relationship, the kindness, the thoughtfulness, yeah. and then obviously the baking and the goods themselves. Yeah, the baking is the bait. It's how we get them in. We really are muddy bait up. There it yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody owns it, I bet they'd sell it pretty, pretty. <laughs> but then it's like all that success. It sounded like the way you described it was just being like a tiger, you know, being pulled oh. by its tail or, or however you want to describe that. And then you kind of, you had this period of, of just searching. And some of these things, they seem they can feel so strange when you articulate what you're going through to other people, to some people, but then you have other people that where they know they've been there themselves and that's just the part of humanity, but you kind of get serious about 
what really got you in it in the first place. And you kind of give yourself permission to explore that. And then what I'm hearing you say is you just achieved more clarity. So you went from being just drug in all these different directions with multiple locations and all these employees, which was success on the backs of the things that you had built at first. And then, and then now it's like, I feel like you have that, the way you're talking, you have that same energy because you're back in the kitchen and you're, you're, you know, with your employees, you're with your customers and it's kind of back to what drove it in the first place. And you can see that transition and how you articulate it, how it got away from that. But then also too, like the American dream can be told in a way that it's almost like you don't have that option or why are you not franchising? And people want to argue with you about it. That's the like other thing I like don't get the number of people that have over the years, like literally attempted to like argue with me about what my bit, like, like, no, I know that I could do that. You're not hearing me. I don't want to do like, why would I want? I don't want to do that. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so ingrained and like, and these are people that again, are like giving a compliment, but not hearing because it's like so unfathomable and yeah, and it's hard. And like, I made a lot of excuses for that growth. The big one for me was like the internal pressure, honestly, from staff, you know, just like I talked about the, you know, the customer who's like, wants us to have a whole menu category that we're not really equipped for, but it's like, because they like us, because they like the experience, you know, I had staff who wanted to stay. I mean, that's a compliment. That's an awesome thing. And a lot of pressure to have roles for them to grow into because they didn't want to leave. And, you know, that one was, I think that was the real kicker. That was the one that kind of tipped me over to convince myself to grow the business was to create that for people instead of just, you know, having the inner strength to be able to say, you know what, I hear you and let's do everything we can to make your next step be everything you want it to be, full stop. There seems to be a lot of bakeries around the country of people like you. For example, the Arcade Bakery, I read in New York that they recently closed because the owner had arthritis and wow. but I know that it's a well-known area in New York city, but for him, it's like, all right, from what I just read, reading the article, the show's over. Like it's been great. It's been a great ride, yeah. but there's that passion to the craft, the way that you laid it out. So I'm curious with the groups that you're in, with the different relationships that you have around the country, do you feel like most people feel the way they do about their business the way that you do? Or do you feel like it's pretty split between other people that are like, I'm going to drive it, I want to franchise it, or I want to have multiple yeah. locations, and it's less hands-on and more, you know, scale and opportunistic? You know, I really couldn't say. People are so varied in their motivations. And, you know, and I think as a society, we benefit from having both. I think it depends a lot on the people. I do think there are a lot of people that are really interested and dedicated to the craft. I think it's an interesting question to ask ourselves as business owners, like which craft specifically, because as much as I'm enjoying back being more hands-on with the food than I have been in a few years, that's probably still not my ultimate wheelhouse. 
in the organization. Like the kitchen, the kitchen is running right now, just fine without me in there. And in terms of like, oh, are we going to make the quantity of things that we need to make today? I'm like the least valuable player. What's interesting is like, that's actually less important for the business than it is for me personally. Like I just need to make sure that today I get some time doing something with my hands in order to give me the energy to then do the stuff that I think I'm actually really good at, which is investing in people. And, you know, not like I'm having a heart to heart with every customer that walks in the door. That would be like really overselling the experience. (laughs) And like half of them probably don't want that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like even just the opportunity to see people for the people that it does matter to like have a moment of connection with, there's a way higher likelihood that that's even going to happen right now. Like it's this interesting thing of right now operating out, out of the one location as a much smaller business, I guess, statistically from our entire customer pool, it's a lot less likely that you as a customer are going to come today because it's not the hours or the location or the whatever that you find convenient. But if you do come, there's a way higher likelihood than there was before that like you're going to see me there. Because before we were open 155 hours a week at two loca- like not even counting the kitchen. The kitchen was operating 24 hours a day, six days a week. But like even just retail time that the general public could walk in 155 hours a week. The likelihood that you had any shot of actually seeing me during that time is like ridiculous. But I think more importantly, the chance that I was going to see you was ridiculous. Because I don't know that people care that much if they can see me, but it makes a really huge difference to me and I think to my team and to the business that I can see the customer and kind of get a sense for what's going on there. So I think it's just a lot easier for me personally to stay on mission. But yeah, but also working with those limitations. You know, I learned an art class years ago. Creativity thrives with boundaries. The worst thing for creativity is a blank canvas. And unlimited resources, the worst. Yeah. So I think that's maybe actually my wheelhouse there is like, I apparently do really well with some boundaries, both physical boundaries and like, okay, here's what we've got to work with. How are we going to make something really special with it? And then I think practically, you didn't ask about this, but something you mentioned earlier, kind of talking about like people's drives and this like successful business. I do think that's the other thing we need to spend like just realistically, you might have some other business owners listening. I think that idea of this successful business is one that can be really toxic because I know we've been talking a lot like about a lot of soul work and you know discernment and vocation and just sort of all of this like big stuff. But there are practical things too. So like I mentioned earlier, last year, so 2019, my business was probably not the not the biggest it's ever been in terms of headcount, but just like our footprint was three locations. We actually had trimmed down the staff. We had like had gotten kind of inefficient. So we'd done some good work on that. But like the beginning of 2019, I think we had maybe like 45 people on the staff, three locations. I was making the same salary that I was making in 2010. And we were significantly less profitable than we were in 2010. This is 2019 or 18? 2019. And I mean, 2018 and 2019, like might as well be the same year in terms of like where Muddy's was. And you had one location in 2010? Yep. 
So with two more locations, you were making less money. Oh, significantly. Yeah. And I'm not saying like that. Some of that's probably just like poor decision-making on my part. Also, like I have my own money issues. Like I'm clearly not doing this for the money. If I were doing this to earn the salary that I bring home, I could find a way more stable job. Maybe not like right now during the pandemic, but like there are other things I could do with significantly less stress and like health insurance. (laughs) So I make enough and I'm, I'm good with that. But something that really did, you know, just some of the practical stuff people have got to think about, I think thinking about growth is like, okay, if the reason you want to grow, whether it's like, you know, my reason was really providing these opportunities for staff, which like also takes money, like that requires money. Or, you know, you're a human, maybe your desire to grow is that you want to make more money. There's nothing wrong with that. Great. I would really examine that though. Because growth is not necessarily like more does not equal more. In fact, like we were probably in the worst place to be practically speaking as just like the nuts and bolts financially of a business in that at two retail locations plus a kitchen, like as a, essentially a three location operation, that was probably like too big to be small and too small to be big. That was like the worst place to be. Like we had the headaches and the expenses and all the stuff of a larger business without having tipped that tipping point into like big enough where your overhead is really thoroughly spread out between a lot of stuff. So yeah, I think that's one of the things people need to maybe keep in mind too. Yeah. And especially when you account for distribution more leases, yeah. especially with what y'all do in particular, it's a hard thing to scale. Right. If you're baking fresh every day and driving it to yourself every morning, like PS, that's actually not real efficient. <laughs> well, yeah. And just think about from a franchise model, the franchise owner, he'll make a small margin on that store, but the owner of the, the name itself will make all their money on the fee from the franchisee. And so if you kind of multiply that out from a from just a single business non-franchise standpoint, yeah. your plan, there's a lot of risk there and a lot of people involved for a small margin. And that's hard. And especially with yeah. the, and then when you think about today with the power of distribution and online and e-commerce and it's almost like if, if you want to scale and you want to and your money's your end goal, starting or buying a small business, depending on what that is, that's labor intensive and capital intensive, it's not your way to go. Yeah. At least run the numbers, like really dig into that. The job that I was doing for three location muddies, it was a real risk factor that was, you know, not just bad for me, but actually bad for the company that like, if I'd been hit by a bus, the company couldn't have hired someone to be willing to do that job for what, not only like, not, not only for my salary, but like, even if you threw in any profit on top of it, nobody would do that job for that return. It, it didn't calculate. So the, you know, that was something like, granted, it was, you know, I didn't get hit by a bus. <laughs> but, you know, that was certainly something that in hindsight, it's just like, oh, that is, that was not good service to all those people counting on me for a job to be, put them in that risky situation of like, well, you know, one wrong left turn and this was irreplaceable. Right. Anything else we haven't talked about you want to share or talk about before we wrap up? 
You know, I do think it's interesting and it's probably feels really trite right now, you know, during pandemic time, but just because it's trite doesn't mean it's not also correct. I would really encourage folks to spend the time that we've got right now to think about that reset. Never we did have three months not operating or, you know, a lot of people kept working or a lot of, you know, everybody's stuff is different. But I do think that if we let this opportunity pass us by, where no matter where you are right now, some extent of your life has been turned upside down and we can't control that. So it's like, congratulations, this apple cart has been upturned, whether you liked it or not. I would really just encourage anyone listening to, okay, you didn't get a choice about that, but what are you going to do with it? Because if five years from now, the world is back to quote unquote normal, and you didn't take this once in a lifetime opportunity to assess what's important to you and what you might want to do differently going forward, then you have missed the greatest gift that this really trying time had for you. Because I've learned more this year about my personal limits in the best possible way than I think I ever was going to have the opportunity to. I've really learned and been able to articulate what is important to me, you know, and some of the stuff that like, okay, if life goes back to normal tomorrow, I don't want to put this thing from my old life back. Like I don't have space for this thing. I'd like to leave it in the past. And I think the more you can articulate that for yourself, the better. So I think we talked about it. We talked about that a lot. But like, if I, if I wasn't clear about that specific ask, I want to be clear about it now for anybody listening. Like that is what I want you to walk away from this conversation and do. Last question I have. What's an example of something you're going to leave in the past? So many things. On the small level, there's like a whole list of menu items. Like, okay, this was great. And it just doesn't need to come with us into the future. Personally, I think a habit that I'm going to leave behind is hopefully just taking on too much. I feel like, knock on wood, I feel like I've maybe like kicked that habit the most I possibly can. But then even just like some different key numbers, I've taken on some key numbers to track that I didn't have before. So like, obviously I track sales and labor hours, but I think I have a max number of employees that I enjoy and can do right by. And so one of the things that I'm not going to add back later is anything over that cap for the future. It's really good. I appreciate how honest you've been. And we said this early on, but you never know where these things go. We could have talked all day about the nuts and bolts of building a company and profit margins and items and her career kind of two worlds becoming as one, but we have spent pretty much this entire time talking about the multi-year season of just trying to figure out what's off, what's at the root of this, where do we go from here, and what is acting on that look like, and then the pandemic hits, and it just accelerates this, and then it's a rebirth, and you sound more alive and energized by the way you've laid all this out, but it's, I think it's so special the way that you've talked about it because oftentimes we're raised in an environment and a society and in systems that 
project. Things need to be done a certain way. And the people that are rewarded or that are recognized do play the game a certain way. And it seems clear that any success that you've had with Muddy's was you playing the game in the way that drove you to play it in the first place. But then now you've gone through this experience of wanting to fight back for that and what it means to you and not to do it for external reasons. And I know for me personally, in my own life, those seasons of just confusion and darkness or trying to understand it, that can be a very lonely place. And, the, oh. and I think the more people that talk about that, it's comforting and encouraging to others as they're going through it. Because oftentimes you almost feel like you're the, you're the odd man out or odd woman out yeah. and you're the weird one. And, and so when you kind of hear that, the way you talked about what drives you, your values, how that's taken effect here, it's very special. And I think it can just encourage and motivate others to explore it in the same way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe to the show, follow me on social, and join me on this curiosity-fueled journey so that you can feel that same sense of purpose and see the opportunities that are right for you. All of this at drivenbypodcast.com. See you next time on the Driven By Podcast.